As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and uh, here's Alex Stewart. Hello, Joe. Here's Seb Stafford-Bloor. Jokes, he's not here for the intro because he's... uh lazy i think uh, but anyway today's episode is a, a second parter to last week's where we discuss footballing dependencies this time we take things a little more broadly and we look at uh, strikers uh, particularly harry kane and players like jamie vardy sergio aguero we talk about goalkeepers manuel neuer allison edison and also we talk about wing backs or full backs and some confusion over the terminology there as it relates to Seb's mind. Uh, what else did we talk about, Alex? Um, I think that's a pretty good summation of it. Obviously, there's <laughs> a greater degree of complexity than you've sketched out, but sure. it's a good good place to start. Sometimes I just like to cover everything and then throw it over to you <laughs> to just see, see <laughs> just what to leave me say. dangling off the edge of a cliff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's well, nice. That's good. As Alex dangles there, I'll just remind you that keen football fans and readers and observers and just people adjacent to the game, if you're alive and you exist and you listen to this podcast, then I think you'll like <clears throat> The Athletic. If you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, you can get some kind of great deal, and I genuinely can't remember what it is at the moment, but I promise you it, that's because it's so good that it has boggled my mind. It might be £1 a week, actually, uh, which, for the quality and the volume of the material that you will have access to, uh, that is an incredible deal. Uh, material such as, Alex? Uh, so I've recently been... And I know why you've done that, because you're trying to trip me mm-hmm. up or catch oh, me yeah. out. But, sure. but actually... I've Ooh. been reading Ryan S. Clark's work on the Seattle Kraken, which is the new uh, expansion franchise in the National Hockey League in America. So, no. Yeah. Well, great work on making it as broad as possible uh, and of interest to people there. Uh, but, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> there's also football stuff, uh, Premier League, of course, do you not, uh, dedicated do you not think journalists. It's, do you not think it's fascinating, though, how a team can just start out of nothing? and have to put an entire roster, coaching staff, head coach and everything together and build from the ground up. Yeah, I mean, it does give me hope. It's it's really the American dream, isn't it? I, it's, the top I think division. it's amazing. Yeah. I wonder how much money that costs, did they say? 
Um, I can't remember reading that because I've been looking at how they're putting their roster together. But it's sure. I mean, it's sure. got to be like a hundred, hundred and fifty million, surely. Yeah, easy it's a pocket lot change. Of money. No problem. I'll do it this weekend. Hey, uh, winning the hockey cup, whatever it's called. Uh, but anyway, cup. the Stanley the Sta- Cup. Stanley Cup. Yeah. In memory of Stanley. Yeah. Uh, listen, uh, that's that's the intro now. My therapist was called Stanley. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay, where better to start uh, than with Mr. Harry Kane? And Seb, I'm going to come to you for Mr. Harry Kane because I believe he's broken both legs. <laughs> Injured both ankles is the version I'd heard, Joe. But yeah, he right, has right. problems in both legs and will be right. out. Jose Mourinho says, "Well, just two fairly innocuous challenges, actually. Like uh, the first, there was one from Thiago, which wasn't great, but you know, hardly um, malicious. And then there was a little bit of a tangle, uh, which seems to have accounted for the the second ankle. But yeah, uh, we know that Kane has weak ankles already." And for what seems like the fifth season in a row, he's going to miss a significant chunk because of an injury in that area. Areas, actually. I was going to ask, I haven't paid particular attention to Kane's injury record, but now that you say it, it does, mm-hmm. he does seem to be injured a fair amount. And, it, it, you know, in the context of today's conversation, part two, football dependencies, uh, this is something that Tottenham come up against pretty much every year, isn't it? Yeah, it's like Christmas, but just bad. Like, it's kind of... It's, so it's Christmas. Just what, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hey, not this year. Not this no, year. No, no. Great time. It's all right this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So obviously, uh, last year it was actually a, a torn hamstring, so it's slightly different. But he, uh, if you remember, going back to, for instance, uh, the Champions League semi uh, quarterfinal first leg against Man City, he uh, injured his ankle there, and that was the injury which almost kept him out of the final season before I think a collision with Asmir Begovic at Bournemouth in which he kind of I think Begovic landed on his ankle and you know caused Kane to roll it basically I I, with the kind of the very vague understanding I have of uh, physiotherapy once you end your ankle never really properly recovers the joint is kind of weakened and it's like a sort of eroding process every time you injure it it gets a little bit more vulnerable and fragile going forward. And, and that seems to have happened to Kane. Plus, of course, like he's he's quite a big guy, Harry Kane. Like he's quite he's quite tall, but he's also he's not he's not slender. He has so there's left. already quite a lot of stress on the joint. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so I, th- I suppose the conversation I'd like to have here, let, let's be- let's begin this with Tottenham, but let's let's broaden it out to talk about centre forwards generally, because often you find teams that have the best centre forwards. Uh, of course, it goes without saying that they're irreplaceable, right? That's a good thing when they're performing well. When they aren't there, it's a bad thing. Other examples, Jamie Vardy, Sergio Aguero. Starting with Harry Kane, though, and Spurs, we've experienced this problem with this team before, so we have a pretty good idea of uh, what the coaches are going to do to uh, to try and make hay during this time. Uh, Son Heung-Ming, obviously, uh, is uh, is a player that is likely to, to step up, or if he even needs to step up, already seems to be at the level. But, of course, Spurs will be fine, because they've also got Gareth Bale, and he can, he can play that role, can't he, Seb? Well, theoretically, Jose Mourinho doesn't seem to want him to play. No, that, that was role. just a joke. I'm sorry. I was just trying to make a joke. I don't have a sense of humor about this. Not like 12 hours has passed since this happened when we're recording. It was recording oh, on Friday morning. So I am still in a fairly angry setting about this. 
Let me um, rephrase then. Okay. Yes, uh, please I'll, I'll make yes. less fun, more serious. Be Okay, let me let me rephrase then. All seriousness, no fun. Uh, Carlos Vinicius, I suppose, is the only player who could be a like-for-like like replacement for Harry Kane. Are we likely to see him coming into the team, or are we likely to see Mourinho trying to you know fix it with some of the adaptable uh, wider forwards that they have? Well, logically, you'd think yes, because uh, Mourinho made a uh, big song and dance about needing Vinicius in the summer. Uh, almost, um, he almost threatened to get a little bit nasty if uh, if he didn't get the player through. Um, also represented by George Mendes, by the way, incidentally. But he's been very reticent in using him in the Premier League. Vinicius's minutes have generally come in the Europa League or the FA Cup. And it's strange because uh, this eventuality has been kind of inevitable, as we, we, we discussed with, with Kane's injury record. And yet Vinicius really hasn't been primed to play Premier League football. I think uh, at the time of recording, he's had about, I don't know, 30 Premier League minutes in, in total. So he's hardly ready to step in. And even at his best, even um, you know, even if he were fully fit and had he played 20 games already this season, he's a different profile and calibre of player to Harry Kane. So he can't fill the role. He can literally fill the shirt and play in that position. But does he provide the same utility to the side? No, and it's not even close. I mean, he, he's quite uh, an interesting kind of facilitating forward. He's got a nice little range of passes. He's got decent vision. But uh, in terms of kind of calibre of player that he's, he's nowhere near. It's quite a funny one, isn't it? It's the, the squad building aspect to it, because you'd think obviously having a player like Harry Kane is, is, is a net positive thing. He's one of the best strikers in the world, right? But when you have irreplaceable players like that, uh, you always get into into struggles. Like, let, let, let's talk about Jamie Vardy, for example. Like, there is no replacing Jamie Vardy at Leicester. There's not really any hope of trying to bother finding another striker who plays like Jamie Vardy and keeping them on the bench all the time because you don't have two Jamie Vardys that play alongside each other. When Jamie Vardy is there, your team can do things that they couldn't do without that player and with another striker, and so that is obviously a benefit. But if you build a team around a player who plays in a particular or a unique way, when they disappear, like Firmino at Liverpool, as an example, uh, suddenly it can affect more of the team than you would like it to or it might have done if it was more of a if that striker was more of an ordinary presence so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a double-edged sword isn't it sure is uh, with Vardy Vardy's a really interesting case because forgetting his skill set for one minute like I've always thought Vardy is has quite a unique attitude towards playing the game I'm not talking about his off-the-field personality I just mean that the kind of the the type of person he is on the pitch he's he must be horrible to play against it must be, you know, uniquely aggravating if you're a centre half or if you want time on the ball. And so, not only are you trying to replace a player that uh, is very instinctive, finish it, lightning quick, uh, but has a has a has a, it's quite a unique work ethic actually on the pitch. You're also trying to replace a, a person, and really yeah. occupies a, a, a particular place in the game. And so, it's, it's really difficult. Yeah, but also, like, I think over time. It's one of the ironies of the game. Like as a, as a player establishes himself and gets successful and achieves things and plays for his country, like there's an intangible benefit to that player. Like with Kane, uh, a lot of Tottenham players in the past have talked about the difference in the group when Kane is in it and when he's not. It reminds me a little bit of the situation at Manchester United back in the uh, back in the nineties. If you if you hear or read members of the class of ninety two talking about Eric Cantona, it's kind of the same thing. Like on one hand, yeah, you've got all the ability and the goals and the the, creat the, the, the creative aspects of his game, but at the same time, you've also got the personality. And I think yeah. you know, Kane is clearly in that category. I'd say Vardy is. Vardy is a Premier League title winner with Leicester. So he's very much a senior member of that Leicester squad. And there, there are intangible benefits to that, which 
conversely get lost when the player is absent. I was actually going to reference Manchester United in the 90s because I'm trying to think of teams that don't struggle when their main forwards are, are injured or, or you know have to be replaced. And the team I'm thinking of uh, is the 1999 team where when you know York and Cole weren't playing, they had uh, Sheringham and Solskjaer, which is a... Uh, to, <laughs> I've thought about this for a long time. It's an unbelievable roster of forwards to have, uh, and also not necessarily all the same profile, but you know, similar, similar in a sense. Alex Sergio Aguero is another one of these players, isn't he? You know, he offers something which is slightly intangible to Manchester City, very difficult to to replace. In fact, City have a number of players like this. We've noticed it this season with the absence of David Silva, as an example. You can buy players that have similar levels of quality to him, but that not necessarily do you know quite the unique thing that that he did. Replacing Sergio Aguero is going to be very, very difficult for Guardiola, isn't it? Yeah, hugely difficult. I mean, I, th- I think this is this is one of the things that that is um, shows why scouting purely based in data is is not necessarily the most sensible thing to do because you can you can find players that have a statistical match um, to other players, but like you say, there are these intangible qualities, and sometimes they are to do with with imperceptible things or not imperceptible but things that are very difficult to measure like speed of movement speed of thought i mean grit you know desire well yeah those things too um i mean i guess you can you can probably infer that from watching a player's body language when they're playing but you know someone like vardy just seems to have a gift for how he moves in relation to defenders. Aguero has an innate understanding of the types of balls that are going to be played in. And I think this is why strikers are a particularly part of this problem. So obviously you have a set of skills and some strikers are better at movement, better at finishing, better at heading, whatever, you know, the, the kind of the end product skills are. But ultimately as well, football is about scoring goals. And everything that a team does is uh, even defense really because of transitions is about getting the ball to that end point so really teams are geared in in their kind of final evolution to get the ball to a certain player who does a certain type of thing and that's why you will see teams struggle this is a thing that Seb mentioned in the last podcast you know that there are certain types of runs that if you're the winger or the creative midfielder or, or the fullback playing with that particular striker regularly you know that they're going to do that and also they know that you're going to be able to do that and that kind of level of understanding which is predicated on repetition and on building a set of tactics with that individual as a focal point it's what teams have to do because otherwise they're not building towards scoring a goal and and there's not really the kind of the direction that makes sense but at the same time if they if they get overly reliant on doing that and don't have the flexibility, then when that player is removed, all of a sudden you've got a striker who doesn't have that instinctive level of understanding, who doesn't know that if they take a step this way and then move at this particular angle, the pass is going to reach them here. And then they have the the technical skill to be able to finish that chance. So you can see why the absence of particular strikers makes such a big difference for teams. Who's the most irreplaceable footballer? Um, Do you mean ever or currently? Or I mean currently, and in the context of their team, like maybe Jack Grealish, for example. It could be, could be, maybe. It it depends, doesn't it? Really, because what you're looking at there then is the difference between the ability. I mean, I would say Jack Grealish is is a phenomenal player, but actually, 
one of the things that Aston Villa have done really, really well this season is to develop other avenues of attack if Grealish is is marked out of the game. Um, yeah. I, I think you are looking potentially at someone like Vardy. Um, he, his ability in the box is so, so good and his the intelligence of his movement, the way that he's adapted his game over time so that, you know, he's gone from, and we did a video on this a while back, where he's gone from feeding off a particular kind of long ball or through pass from, for example, a Riyad Mahrez or a Danny Drinkwater into adapting to how Leicester play this more, slightly more patient style of build-up, working with people like James Madison. You know, that adaptability, again, is incredibly hard to, to replicate. Um, his movement in the box is incredibly hard to replicate. And you... But then you're also looking at a squad, aren't you? Like you said, with with Manchester United, you know, Cole and, and York were a phenomenal strike partnership. But then in the wings, you had Solskjaer, who was incredibly predatory. You had Sheringham, who was able to drop off and link up play in a way that was different, perhaps, from those other players. So it's also about the flexibility within the squad that allows them to adapt. And maybe Leicester don't have a striker that can play in that same sort of way. Sheringham got all those fat headers, didn't he? I loved Sheringham's goals because they were all um, just shit goals, you know? <laughs> they were all those goals. They're like, strikers bread and butter. There's the police. They're taking you away for a truly terrible opinion about Ted Sheringham. <laughs> taking, taking me away for two, two podcasts. In Rightly a row. so. And they're coming because I called them, to be honest with you. Like, not, as a Tottenham let fan, me I clarify, cannot have that. Uh, Teddy Sheringham's goals weren't all shit. His goals for Manchester United when he was older were all kind of like those doggy goals. You know? Teddy Sheringham's got some really beautiful goals for Spurs. Go to, sure, if you're younger sure, and you don't remember sure. that, that period of time, go to, uh, go to the old YouTube. It's possible that people don't remember Teddy Sheringham. Well, I was going to say, is Sheringham one of those players of of incredible quality and also in some ways quite a modern striker because of this ability to to drop off, link up, play, play other players through? He was, he was in that They called him of... the weaver. <laughs> no, they didn't, but he did a lot of weaving, you know? Sure. But for some reason, he seems to not be talked about with the same level of reverence as some other players from that era. Which, which to me to do with his move, though. I think it's actually might be to do with his longevity because obviously Sheringham, Sheringham's era involves a really long period of time. Whereas when you talk about the era of someone like Robbie Fowler or Ian Wright, you, you're referencing quite a narrow epoch. Whereas Sheringham didn't he play I mean, till he was forty? forty, exactly. Yeah, um, and there were kind of. You know, he was back at Tottenham twice. He was at West Ham. He was at Portsmouth. A lot of Sharon's qualities were kind of evergreen. So if you look back at the Premier League's history in particular, there are forwards who are associated with a particular time of the competition. So you're thinking about Les Ferdinand, Ian Wright again, you know, Shearer. You know exactly the era that I'm referring to. Whereas Sheringham, Sheringham's abilities are as relevant now as and you know would have been as relevant 50 years ago as they were then. Like I, I think he is underappreciated as a player. I think he also gets lost in that cliche about, oh, yeah, the first couple of yards are in are in the head because he wasn't that quick. And so you kind of, it's only really when you go back and you watch the things that he did on the pitch that you appreciate what a good player he was. If you missed it first time around, if you didn't get to see him live, then you would. And it's, um, it's difficult. And it was a phenomenal um the Premier League always has been heavy with like predatory forwards. And so it's, it's easy to to miss someone like that, I think. 
that's what I've done, Seb. I've missed him. I've painted him as a shit goal scorer. You but have, actually, yeah, yeah. You've made me look a fool. Deliberately so, like, and you know, the, the police sirens could not have been even even if Adonis <laughs> had dubbed that into the podcast after we've recorded it, could not have been more perfect. <laughs> okay. In fact, it, Adonis, if there's a way of emphasizing that before we before we release the pod, that'll be that'll be fantastic. Shots fired. Suspect down. Request EMT immediately. Uh, we'll be back in a minute <laughs> to talk about wing backs. Proceed with caution. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey, Seb, wingbacks. Is that just discuss? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, so wingbacks are really interesting because they exist as a tandem, so they're a pair. And at their very, very best, they do work as a as a tag team, as a genuine combination. The obvious example, of course, is uh, Andy Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold. And if you look back across like Liverpool's ascension towards the European Cup and the, obviously the Premier League title, it's amazing how much of, I suppose, how many attacking gear changes happen at their feet, whether it be, you know, from, um, you know, a cutting ball, uh, a surging run, or even actually like a, uh, a switch of play between the two of them. Uh, it's, it's an amazing thing to watch. But I mean, I suppose... Can I stop you and ask a question? Go on. Of course you can. When you say wing backs, what I think is uh, three at the back and wing backs. But do you okay. just mean full backs that are, are lofty in their advancement of the pitch? I suppose so. I, I think I conflate the two now because the full back has a, the modern full back has a very wing back like role in terms of kind of the attacking emphasis that's placed on their shoulders. Absolutely. So, full back, wing back. There's a difference in terminology, but but today it seems more to refer to the system around them. So you kind of a wing back if you've got three centre halves inside you, three central midfielders, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, where their their starting point is is kind of seems kind of incidental. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. You know, wing backs were able to advance high with three at the back as centre backs because that was a natural affording of cover one of those center backs could pull wide um and and get into that space behind where the wing back had advanced of course now with modern fullbacks and andy robertson and trent alexander arnold are a particularly good example of this partly just their athleticism means that they are able to run up and down though you know both flanks of the pitch without needing that additional center back as cover Obviously, if you lose a player like Virgil van Dijk, which is something that we talked about in a video that I think is coming out fairly soon. Um, coming out on Friday. Coming out on Friday. So, you know, you can go from three to two centre-backs covering, but when one of those centre-backs 
is of Van Dyke's quality that there's clearly a, a greater degree of security there. Obviously, there's a, a, a knock-on effect there as well when you've got midfielders that have defensive responsibilities dropping back into the back line, and that does, to a degree, thwart the ability of fullbacks to push quite as high. Um, I think what's also interesting is that fullbacks very much work in tandem, and I think again the Liverpool pair are, are, are a good example of this. And you have two different types. You have you have fullbacks that both push up really really high, um, where generally speaking, um, you know they they are looking to work the ball across to one another, or one of those fullbacks is able to make a, a run inside towards the edge of the area when the other fullbacks got the ball. Um, clearly, the fact that you've got one that's left-footed and one that's right-footed assists this because you can get those nice switches of play while you're moving forward so everything can be done dynamically. The other type of fullback pairing that we're seeing quite a lot of in the Premier League is is where one fullback is the aggressive pushing up kind of almost playing as a winger at times and the other one stays back and tucks inside and and makes almost a third center back. Um and, and gives that kind of lopsided position. The point being that these both rely on the fullbacks having a clear understanding of what the other one is doing. And so when one of those players is absent, then that level of understanding, that kind of synchronicity between them both going up to make an attacking front five or one of them holding back to provide cover by tucking inside, that that kind of loses something. Um, and so I think here we're talking more about issues affecting a system rather than necessarily the absence of individual quality on that role, although that is also important. Okay, let's move on to goalkeepers now. Goalkeepers, <laughs> interesting for two different reasons. <laughs> I liked what you said, Alex. I just had nothing to add to it. was just a brutal cut, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was just waiting to see if anybody had anything to say, but nobody did. I think basically that just means you covered it in such elegance and detail that there's really nothing left for me to do. Uh, well done. Goalkeepers, uh, I'd like to say two different things here with goalkeepers. One, you've got your quality. Two, you've got your type. Am I right? I'm right. Uh, one, quality, you, know, you lose your number one, you've got your number two. Number two's never as good. We all know that to be true. Even the number two, what a difficult psychological position to be in on the bench. Never mind. Two, type. Now, this is where it really gets interesting because I think of Goalkeepers like a Manuel Neuer or even Allison at Liverpool who offer something extra and unique, pushing up, being an extra, uh, you know, a passing option, uh, helping the shape of the team. When you lose a, a player like that, it can really affect absolutely everything about how your team play. Seb, sure can, Joe, and I, I think it's quite interesting to start with that psychological aspect because you listed a couple of goalkeepers there: Neuer, um, uh, Allison. Probably you'd add in Edison there, maybe Hugo Lloris at Spurs. Like these players, um, if they're not captains of their side, then they have a very specific kind of relationship with the players around them, and they have a command over them. Again, let's let's um, let's go back to the well and use uh, '90s Man United as an example. Peter Schmeichel had a strange kind of dominance and relationship with some of his centre halves. Like I, I think. Um, you know, if you if you listen to Gary Neville speak about the way that Schmeichel used to shout at him during games, like you scary. see a kind of it is scary, but it also it's a dynamic that you just can't replicate. Like back then, if you brought in a like a Gary Walsh or a Kevin Pilkington, 
you'd see a an effect on a, a side like Man United that was far greater than just losing the goalkeeper. And I think that's the most damaging thing. Also, Ale, you, you mentioned like how difficult it is to be a, a number two at a club, but even if you're not coming off the bench, if you're just if you're coming into the team, and generally in that situation, you're coming in after probably not having played a league game for quite a long time. A, you're nervous. B, you're uncertain of all kinds of things, including, you know, the speed of the game and um, you don't have the same familiarity with your opponents. You don't know what a forward's traits are, those kind of things. And so you're having to balance that kind of internal personal struggle with obviously your obligation to the side itself. I think that's a really, I think it's a really understated... It's not like you know. It maybe maybe a little winger is clearly the second uh, the second yeah. choice. But uh, if they're not doing well at sixty minutes, you know, you cuff them and uh, you put your put your starter on or put somebody else on. Uh, that no happen with goalkeeper. It no happen with goalkeeper, but also like that that nippy winger coming on as an impact player. That's a role that he's used to, isn't it? Because that's what he does. Like that's your. That's your that that that's your your position at the club. It's your it's your sure. it's part of your job description. Would you would you believe me if I told you that I was a goalkeeper, Seb? Yes, because you're big and loomy. Yes. No, but for my <laughs> personality, can you see how it has impacted me as a human being? Yeah, I I can see some crossover there. Yeah. Well, you're you know. wrong because I was quiet until I was an adult. See, uh, there's, so. there's, there's, you you. <laughs> I don't feel like that. The way you've said that deserves a sense of victory you've given it. I feel like you've it, mugged it, it yourself does. off quite a lot there, actually. I wasn't a very good goalkeeper. I was just the big, tall guy, you know? Hey, put that guy in the goal. He'll probably block half the goal with his mass, which I did. You know, it wasn't that bad. Uh, but uh, Alex, you were a goalkeeper as well, weren't you? Uh, yes, I was. I was. It's a, it's a weird position psychologically, Seb's right. You're not I think. even that tall. Why were you a goalkeeper? Um, because I was lazy and I didn't want to run around. Yep, yep. Mostly. Um, but, yeah, and and obviously something about the existential angst of the position appealed to me even at a young age. <laughs> Seb, what position did you play? I played in goal. You also played in goal? Is this a joke? No, no. So uh, I, if you go, there's actually, um, I have a podcast with my old goalkeeping coach. So if you if you look back in our archive, if you find oh, the, yeah. uh, the Les Cleveley episode, he came into to our school to to coach our side. We were very spoiled as uh, amateur schoolboy footballers, but yeah, Les came in and um, we recounted some of our uh, our adventures during that period. But I was um, I really struggled because I um, I because you're a paranoid wreck. Well, exactly. Like I really struggled with the psychological aspects of it, and um, it's a, it was very trying. And I used to get um, a lot of people used to come and watch, and I used to be very afraid of that. And also, when I was sixteen, I was about. I think five foot six. Um, so no, I was. That's not tall enough. With, and I used to get knocked about and concussed and, you know. Although um, the, the first ever really great goalkeeper uh, in Russia, Alexei Komech, was only five foot eight. But what was the average height of people during his era? Because that's, a, that's a, an interesting little detail. Because the average height yeah. of human beings is, is, um, has changed quite dramatically throughout the 20th century. I'm really bringing the average up, I think. <laughs> In, in any era, you're like a cartoon giant. Yeah, you are. You are quite tall. Yes, yes. I tell you what, you need gang uh, goalkeepers out there. Hey Seb, some advice for you if you're thinking about getting back into professional goalkeeping. What you really need is confidence. You need hair gel, 
uh, I think you need a particular, you know, look at the look at the world, the ability to be a libertarian at a, at a moment's notice, but not really. Um, and also, you need brute force and aggression, uh, and to think that everything you have ever said and done is right, and that other people don't deserve <laughs> time in your life if they think differently. And if you have those things. I think you could be a professional goalkeeper. Not to say that professional goalkeepers all have those things. Really, it's a joke about me. You know, yes, we all no. get it. Do we all get I, that it's I, I about think, me? I think, I think, you know, people were able to untangle that clever web of words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, were they? They probably yeah, I reckon so. Anyway, you know, the point of this is to say, when you lose a goalkeeper, it's bad. Obviously, isn't it? Obviously. I feel like people are going to listen to this bit and go, yeah, Obviously. Alex, say something smart with some big words so that people get confused and think we've done something clever. So there are two types of goalkeeper predominantly. You have the sort of more go. traditional type that, that stays back, defends their six-yard box, doesn't come out too much, and then you have the other more progressive modern type. We sometimes call them uh, sweeper keepers, although there are different types of those. And obviously, if you if your number two is not the same as your number one in terms of that proactivity... It affects your defensive line position. It affects your ability to build up from the back. So really, even if you take out the fundamentals of being good at taking crosses and stopping shots and shouting at defenders like Peter Schmeichel did, you can literally, just by changing your goalkeeper, adjust your team's position on the pitch by like 5 to 10 metres. And that is an enormous difference and affects every other facet of play, which is why top-level teams... A, spend so much effort on recruiting goalkeepers, but also it's why, you know, Pep Guardiola had the slightly ill-fated Claudio Bravo experiment, um, because the ability to set the defensive line and play out from the back is considered so important now among a lot of teams. You get interesting exceptions, teams like Atletico Madrid with, with Jan Oblak and Ivo Gerbic, the understudy there. They're both very much old-school traditional goalkeepers, Um and there it's much more about shot-stopping, cross-claiming, organising a defence. Um, that's not to say modern goalkeepers don't do that as well, but I, I think I think it, it says a lot that a team will recruit a, or should recruit a type of goalkeeper predicated on a style of play. Um, and again, understudies are just not going to be as good at that sort of thing, not as commanding. The psychological aspect comes in as well, because if a goalkeeper is a number two, they're going to be less proactive. They'll be more worried about making mistakes because they'll be under the spotlight. I'm thinking of when Adrian had to step in for Allison and made a couple of high-profile errors with his kicking. So it, it in some ways, it's possibly, to go back to a question that you asked earlier, the most irreplaceable player in, in football could be a goalkeeper of that ilk for one of those clubs like a Liverpool or a Man City. Oh, you answered with style. You have answered with style. Here's a trophy for how well you answered that question, Alex. I hand oh, it to you. What, what a lovely trophy that is. Just to finish, I know I'm breaking the rules of the, uh, the, the the structure, the theme of this podcast, but something that interested me that I read about yesterday was uh, the multiple reports that uh, Chelsea want to buy uh, Haaland. And talking about irreplaceable players, caused me to think of him. Of course, he's irreplaceable. Can somebody just explain to me how he fits with Werner and uh, Averts and Pulisic and uh, and the, the the other one? He does. He doesn't really. So what? What the fuck? Because he's the best young striker in the world. So, so who who loses out? I I, I think particularly because Tuchel has a relationship with Pulisic, 
may play on the right-hand side because he did do that for Tuchel at Dortmund quite a bit. But if he does play on the left, then that's Werner's other natural position. Obviously, Ziyech as well is, is doing quite well on the right-hand side. So you would be looking... The other big loss would be Tammy Abraham, um, who I think, you know, if you watched how Chelsea played against Luton and the way that some of those younger players like Abraham, also Billy Gilmore played... Um, there's there's a lot of scope to suggest that actually Chelsea should maybe focus a little bit more on developing those guys rather than spending a huge amount of money on a player who's undoubtedly brilliant but will stop the progress of Abraham and also probably force Werner out of the side. Yeah, I was just curious. One of those uh, one of those ones that made me scratch my head. You know. Oh, one more thing to say. Uh, it's fair to say, and I'll ask you, Seppi, if you've heard any specific feedback, that there was mixed response to T-Pose. Um, did... <laughs> <laughs> did anyone say I mean, anything I... specific to you, Seb? Well, I, I'm still wading through a sea of messies. Sure. Um, there's a bit of a delay. There's been quite yeah. a bit of negative reaction to T-Pose. I, I don't well, think something it's gonna, gonna go I well. should have looked at before. Two people said this to me. As soon as we released the episode, I thought, well, I'll just put that in Google Translate and see what that means in case I've said something horrific. Right? <laughs> Haven't. It turns out in Portuguese it means type, and in uh, Spanish it, it kind of means guy. It's quite masculine. So uh, on that basis, it's not the one for us. I don't think because it's too. It's not. Uh, it's too exclusive, isn't it? It's too exclusive. Uh, there were some other suggestions. Uh, I don't know if either of you have any thoughts. Uh, I, I was interested to read. Some people were saying tifoses, but I think that's you know, that's probably already too too much kind of a thing. Kind of taken as well. Tifoid, but I, you know, typhoid is no laughing matter. Tifoid. Uh, yeah, someone said that. Um, there's other. Typhoid is no laughing matter. No, sorry, it's not a laughing <laughs> matter. Hold on, no laughing at that. Um, I Why don't do know. people Maybe there's need a name though? Just for marketing purposes, not for just okay. because. Um, no, because it obviously creates a, a a sense of belonging, and it's important culturally, and we can make a lot of money. But it's nice we for can, people. We can bash them all together uh, and sell them to someone. Them them. But it's good because it brings people on a human level together, and they get to spend time together. And maybe it'll improve their their lives, and we'll make a lot of money. And also, it's just a nice. It's like um, it's something. It's just put. It's it's doing going the extra mile for the people who helped us get to the position that we're in making them feel special making a lot of money and just you know doing something that's that's i think uh, probably on the whole maybe the most morally positive thing that we would ever ever do in making a lot of money so if you have any thoughts listeners you know do comment below if you liked tipo hey make a call for it maybe you could do but if there's another name that you uh somebody said flutes i quite like that because of the flute the beginning flutes what up flutes maybe seb um, should maybe seb should run a um a, a, a twitter poll or maybe maybe listeners should tweet seb maybe, maybe, with maybe suggestions that off. he could put into his twitter poll that might be an idea uh listen tipos tifosis hey listen guys thanks uh, and and gals thanks so much for listening to today's episode 
uh, I've said this about six times already, but next week is the week that we are moving to a, a, a Tuesday and a Friday. So Tuesday stays the same. We'll be going to a Friday. It will give us an opportunity to be able to to talk about the most recent things that have actually happened in football and elaborate on it. We're not going to become a match review podcast, but it will just mean that we're not quite so off the pace, off the pulse, off what's happening. We want to know what's happening. Yeah. So we'll be able to do that as of next week. Uh, Seb, thanks to you. Thank you, Joe. And Alex, thanks to you. Cheers, Joe. Uh, thanks to producer Adonis also. And uh, we'll be back on Thursday with something else that is similar to this, but not, not quite the same, but basically, you know, uh, interchangeable. Bye! Bye!